street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Epistemic, episode number 20. We've got a very special show for you today uh, titled The Backfire Effect. Uh, my name is Reed Nicewonder, a.k.a. Cordial Curiosity, uh, your host for today. And we also have, as usual, Anthony Magnabosco and Daniel Earls. What's up, Anthony? Howdy. Hey, not hey. Too much, not too much. Good to but see you Dan. again. You missed our last show, and it's nice to have you back. Mm -hmm. And also a very special guest. Uh, Dr. Jonas Kaplan. What's up, Dr. Kaplan? Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Hey, Dr. Kaplan. Uh, really nice to hear you, have you here. Um, I think we worked out beforehand that we can call you Jonas. Please. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, quick intro on uh, Jonas. He is the research assistant professor and co-director of the Dornsife Cognitive Neuroimaging Center at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. And he co-authored uh, a paper called The Neural Correlates of Maintaining One's Political Beliefs in the Face of Counter-Evidence, which is uh, all where all this backfire effect stuff uh, came from. So welcome, uh, welcome, Jonas. Thank you, thank you. Jonas, so nice to have you here. Uh, we had the, uh, the opportunity to meet in person about a month ago. I was uh, visiting Los Angeles and you would help me prepare some, some documentation, I guess, for a presentation that I gave on street epistemology, where we referred to your paper um, that you co-authored. And then we kept in touch and you were kind enough to give me a tour of the facility that you work at, which was, I, I had, I was like a kid in a candy store. Uh, it was probably the highlight of my two week trip to Los Angeles, don't tell my family, <laughs> but I, I loved it. And the work that you're doing excites us because of, of the things that you were uncovering about the human brain. And I know from our previous discussions that you have a, a good understanding of what street epistemology is. And we're really excited about the research that you're participating in because it seems like it's 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 guiding us. Like we, we see where the science is going and we try to incorporate your findings into how we engage with people on sensitive topics. So I really can't think of a better guest to have on our show. And it's just really an honor to have you here. Thank you. Just just to extend your timeline uh, back, the history uh, doesn't start exactly where you did because before I met you, I had seen your YouTube channel, and uh, was definitely a fan of it and found it interesting. So uh, when when you contacted me, I already knew who you were and, and was was a little bit aware of street epistemology, just as someone who's interested in these kind of things. I came ah. across you guys. Wow, that's great. That's great. Amazing. So you had a letter you wanted to read real quick, Anthony? Oh, yeah. If you don't mind, so? I got a letter from a from a fellow. Uh, and I, it, I thought it's, it's a it, it was a great letter, uh, completely unsolicited. And it kind of addresses a lot of the things that motivates us to do street epistemology. So let me just get into it here. Hi, Anthony. You don't know me, but I'm here to thank you for teaching me the basis of street epistemology. I'm a 38 year old man from Brazil married to a theist woman for six and a half years. Religion never was a problem for us, and we decided if we ever had kids, we would teach them about religions when they reached the age of reason. Long story short, recently our veterinarian died in a stupid motorcycle accident, and my wife, as all human beings, was having problems dealing with his death. 
To be clear, we weren't close to him, but our two dogs are like kids, and he saved one of them twice. So even though we weren't close, he did leave a strong mark on us. When we started talking about it and I was trying to show her what my views of life and death are, I saw a chance to try a bit of street epistemology that I saw from your videos. So I started asking her questions. When we reached the point of faith, we got stuck. So I decided to tell her about the fire-breathing dragon I've been keeping in the garage for the past couple of years. I told her I believe it on faith and that our youngest dog helps me take care of it. She laughed and the conversation ended there. The very next day, she said that after our conversation, she started doubting and is now asking questions. I'm doing my best to show her how to use the tools she has to arrive at a conclusion by herself. I don't know what that conclusion will be, but I'm excited to help her along the path. At one point, she said that she was starting to believe me, and I told her that she shouldn't. She should do the research herself and try to figure out things for herself and not just rely on what others say, even when the others are her husband or mother. In moments of crisis, she prays and she feels that her God helps her, and she doesn't want to be alone. In that case, I asked her to imagine for a moment that there is no God and she knows that. In what scenario, who does she think helped her? She answered, me, and is starting to question more. Funny thing is, we've had these conversations about a thousand times before, but I was telling, not asking. The first time I started asking questions opened up a universe of possibilities. I can't thank you enough for the journey I see opening up for us both. She is also excited about it, but at the same time, a bit terrified and yet really seems open to all possibilities. So thank you very much for showing me street epistemology. And if you have any advice on how to better help her explore things, that will be very welcome. And I absolutely love that, that letter um, from this individual. Awesome. Great story. Absolutely. I, I would imagine, Reed, are you starting to get kind of feedback like that from people watching your content? Every once in a while, maybe once every few months. But mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's amazing to see when that happens. For sure. Mm -hmm. All right. So but, next up, yeah, go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say, it's really nice to hear that there was a change in the attitude in the conversations. And I really like that. He said, instead of telling people he just started asking more and it's so it, it's like his worldview did, hadn't changed in this conversations it was just entirely how he approached the conversation and suddenly you know some of these more deeper questions are being asked and i also appreciated that he knew that his job wasn't to tell her what was true and what was not true um and i when i try to have these conversations i try to not make that my goal either um, it's always just to open up the dialogue in the first place to get people to that state of thinking. So I, I, I really like that that letter. That was really nice. Yeah, it definitely touched on a lot of things that that we find important when we're doing SE, that that idea of asking questions, not guiding people rather than, you know, challenging what they think is true by asking questions and giving them time to process it, even though she might be saying, I don't know if she was saying this, but it sort of, he sort of implied it that maybe she was asking him for the answers and he resisted, he resisted uh, trying to influence her and trying mm -hmm. to let her figure it out on her own. So that was really great. 
So when you when you hear something like that, Jonas, I'm a little curious. Keeping in mind, like the research that you're involved in, what goes through your mind when you when you see stuff like that? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think there's a lot in there that we'll probably end up touching on in our conversation today. I mean, first of all, there's how difficult it is for someone to change their minds. Um, that and also. Uh, one of the uh, underlying reasons it's difficult for us to change our minds has to do with our social relationships. Uh, I think it was mentioned in the letter that uh, maybe some of her beliefs were tied to her family and her mother and uh, where the beliefs come from and, and how they form and when they form in the course of our lives is very important um, because uh, social relationships tend to help maintain our beliefs and to keep them steady when we share them with other people. Um, and then you have an interesting situation uh, where uh, it, within the marriage there are different beliefs and um, and how the a husband and a wife resolve those things is is really interesting because that's that might be also part of the the key to how how beliefs change is through negotiation with with other people that we care about. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of the other things you said about uh, about methods of of asking questions and avoiding uh, direct full frontal attacks that that make people defensive in, in trying to change their minds is, is really important. Mm. There was other, one other thing about that, that letter right at the start where they mentioned a good friend had died. I'm wondering, do you see, have you ever come across any studies that might suggest that people who might've experienced a loss or, 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 or going through some sort of trauma that they might be more open or less open or in, in a better position to evaluate beliefs? Uh, I, I don't know of any research, but it doesn't surprise me. One of the things that makes beliefs really hard to change is when they become part of ourselves, part of our identity and who we think that we are. And once beliefs, beliefs get inside that kind of trusted circle of identity, the brain then protects them as if they're part of ourselves, part of our body worth protecting. And I think often events like the one described, a loss, a, a death, are times when we question ourself and our identity. And uh, we, we may have a little bit of looseness there in the identity, a little bit of uh, fluidity to the self um, in those moments that allows us to question things a little bit more. Mm. Well, regarding the the backfire fact that we, we were, I think all three of us have, have been avidly watching the progress of, of that, uh, the research in that area. I think I may have listened to David McRaney's episode one of a four-part series now on the backfire effect. If anyone's listening to the, this podcast, I would imagine that you would really enjoy the whole series of, of those discussions. The latest one culminating, I think, with uh, some, newest, some new research that might suggest that, and correct me if this isn't it, but it's my understanding that there might be some new research to suggest that people might not be as opposed to facts as we may have originally thought. They might actually accept the facts that you present them, even though they might show that they're mistaken, but it may not necessarily change their view or their attitude of the belief. Yeah. Is that accurate? I think that is accurate. I mean, first of all, I guess in, in talking about research around the backfire effect, we probably just want to acknowledge that this is a very new field where we don't know a lot and regarding what we know, we have to keep an open mind, right? Um, there are, there's definitely research showing the backfire fact, which is that when you present people with information that contradicts their beliefs, sometimes their beliefs get even stronger rather than weaker. That's why it's called the backfire effect. 
But there is some newer research showing that it doesn't always happen. And in fact, it may be difficult to demonstrate experimentally. So I think we really don't understand yet the situations in which it happens, the situation in which it doesn't happen, why it happens to some people, why it doesn't happen to other people. But the phenomenon that you mentioned does exist. There are some studies with uh, people who are against vaccines, for example, that show if you give people information about how vaccines don't cause autism, which they don't, you can get people to change their perception of whether vaccines cause autism. But that doesn't necessarily change their intention to vaccinate their children, which is mm. really the, the important thing, right? And that seems very susceptible to the backfire effect. And uh, I think it's actually a really uh, interesting example of why this is so important, why it's so important for us to be able to change our minds and to be able to incorporate new evidence into our lives. It's something with a real world consequence, right? Whether or not we vaccinate our children is a real actual public health issue that we're all faced with. For sure. There was a, uh, an article in The Hollywood Reporter, uh, 2015 or so, that showed um, here on the west side of Los Angeles, where I live, among the elementary schools, there was just an absolutely alarming rate of non-vaccination of children, to the point where vaccination rates here were worse than they are in some developing countries like Sudan. And that's amazing. It's really because of the persistence of a, an erroneous belief that's somehow surviving waves and waves of counter evidence. So uh, I think the vaccine issue is, is one example, but there are, are countless others why it's really important for us to be able to encounter, to, to incorporate new information to our beliefs and why we should care about the fact that it, it's not so easy to do. Mm. I'm wondering if just being aware that we might have a resistance to, to facts that challenge us could in and of itself make us more open to accepting facts that are uncomfortable. Do you have any, any insights into that or some hypotheses? I think that's a really interesting idea. I, I wonder if that helps. I mean, that's something that we could really easily test experimentally. Oh, really? Yeah, we could, uh, you know, we could teach people, uh, we could give them a little bit of a lesson about the backfire effect, for example, and then see if that uh, makes them more open to new information. I have a, a suspicion that it's not that easy. And uh, one, one of the reasons I think it's not that easy is because, you know, a lot of the reason that we hold on to beliefs doesn't have to do with rational cognition. You know, it's not like we are these logical computers and we just need the right piece of logic in order to be able to function properly. A lot of what we believe and the decisions we make about how we believe have to do with how we feel and have to do with emotions, uh, emotions that um, make us feel bad when we're challenged, emotions that make us feel good when we uh, are validated by someone else who shares our beliefs. And, you know, one of the things our brain research showed us is that these, these emotions are important and the brain structures that support these emotions um, can predict whether or not we're going to change our minds in certain circumstances. So I suspect that just having a little piece of knowledge or a little piece of evidence isn't going to do it. We somehow have to change the way we feel. Yeah, that reminds me of the system one versus system two style of thinking. System one being our intuitions, our emotions. It's really, that's most of our uh, cognition. And then there's system two, which is the slow thinking, uh, rational type of thing. And then Jonathan Haidt kind of made a, a metaphor for this with the elephant and the writer. Is that a helpful metaphor, do you think? I think it is a, a helpful metaphor. And the idea is, you know, the, the elephant is this big hulking mass, which is the all of the automatic um, circuitry in, in the brain, in the body that, that, that um, is based on 
intuitions and gut feelings um, that we're, we're this little rider trying to kind of steer it on top. I, I think that is a good metaphor. And you, you know, it's if you think about how intertwined emotion and cognition are, you can start to see how impossible it is to really think completely rationally. Um, you guys talk to people a lot about certainty and doubt and, and whether they feel any certainty. And if you introspect yourself when you're answering a question about certainty, you might find that even that comes down to some kind of a feeling. You know, how, how, how certain do I, do I feel about this? How, how much doubt, uh, is there a little bit of anxiety or doubt there when I think about this, this particular uh, point? And so um, emotions are always in support and underneath cognition, and we can't really separate them out. Mm. That speaks a lot to my own personal experience, I have to say. I remember when I was talking with you, Anthony, and we had this conversation about what we were certain about. And you kind of use the language of whether I was 100% confident, 0% confident. And that wasn't really like a level of thinking that I was used to. I was more used to kind of an absolutes, like you either know or you didn't know. I didn't, I, I, I honestly found myself not comfortable with the idea of percentages because that implies that there's some uncertainty there. <laughs> um, and now I'm much more, I'm much, much more comfortable with that obviously now because I realize that it's just a, a better way to think about things, especially if you're talking about like Bayesian parameters and things like that. You know, if you have these different models of, of thinking, but it can be startling to somebody who may not have been taught to think that way, mm. um, especially if it's about beliefs that uh, can have, you know, existential consequences if you think about them for too long. So, or even, or even like real world costs, getting kicked out of your family, you know, or something yeah. like that. But yeah. to, to Jonas's point, you know, we're not doing Bayesian analysis in, analysis in the field that these, mm -hmm. these are subjective feelings, feeling states that we're providing. So if someone were to ask me an hour ago, if Jonas was joining the podcast today, I mean, yes, I'm thinking of evidence dialogues that I may have had with him or, or the last email that he had and him acknowledging that he was coming. Um, Every little bit of information that I get is moving me in terms of my certainty that that's going to happen. Um, so I guess I'm it is sort of a feeling that it's that it's the case. Um, it's certainly not scientific or anything like that, but it's definitely not a yes, no, black and white. I know he's going to be here. I'm talking about my confidence that he's going to be joining the podcast. If he were to have messaged me five minutes before and said something came up, then my confidence would 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 drift. Mm. Yeah, and just then notice the the language that we use when we talk about this. I mean, you, you just mo mentioned a, a moment ago that you were startled when when Anthony uh, gave that to you, and that now you feel more comfortable about it. Uh, those are those are words that describe how you're feeling about um, about the situation. Why do you think so many people are? Th this has been baffling me lately, particularly within like the last three weeks. There, there's there's a lot of folks that are absolutely certain that they cannot be mistaken on their view of a particular belief. And it just, it, it really baffles me that, that somebody could profess to be so confident, so certain when I've come to, and maybe it's the act of asking these questions and realizing that so few people have valid epistemologies and valid justifications, but I've come to the point where I'm absolutely fine saying that I'm uncertain of pretty much everything. It doesn't alarm me. I, I find comfort in uncertainty. And I, I'm always perplexed when I meet people who who are afraid of it, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not so surprised by that. Um, if you 
if you think about why we have beliefs and, and models of the world, they are to reduce uncertainty. To make The brain tries to make predictions about what's going to happen in the, in the world so as to be prepared for those uh, eventualities. Mm. Um, the brain devotes a lot of its effort to making predictions about what we're going to perceive, about what's going to happen, about what kind of uh, things we're gonna see other people do and see ourselves do. And you know that's, that's the basis of belief is to re reduce uncertainty, to build models of the world that we can make predictions from. Sure. And you know, uncertainty is uncomfortable in, in general. And, and some people may be more or less uh, comfortable with uncertainty, but I think in general, it does make people uncomfortable and there's probably good reason for that. So to be, to be clear, yes, um, I, I am trying to build the best model of reality using my senses, using this brain, as best I can. Uh, it's not going to be a perfect system. And, but coming to the realization that try as I might using the tools that are available to me, that the model that I end up constructing is going to probably need some adjustment here and there. That's probably an understatement, but, but the, but the realization that I need to make a tweak in my model of reality doesn't upset me. I'm okay with it. Like I'm, it, it helps me. I feel like, feeling hmm interesting word i feel like it's bringing me to a, a sharper clearer more vibrant image of re what reality is but it doesn't it doesn't disturb me to find out that i've been believing something that's not true i can i feel like i can make that adjustment easier these days and do you think that's because you've been just practicing it and you you're, you're more I, familiar with the feeling and i think so or, or I, i'm a dialoguing with somebody and it's it seems evident by the way that they're expressing themselves and carrying themselves and the words that they're using that they're feeling that sense of uneasiness and but and it seems like it's okay to have those feelings of uneasiness as long as you there's the flip side of this try to take actions to discard views of reality that probably don't align with it yeah, so I, I guess the other thing I, I would say that it sounds like you're doing and something that I do as well, I don't want to just talk about you, but um, mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what you seem to be doing is, is having a, a healthy amount of distance between yourself and what you view as yourself and the actual beliefs and the models of the world, right? You know, one of the things we did in our experiment was we compared how people reacted to beliefs that were things they cared about. In, in the case of our experiment, they were political beliefs because we had people who were self-identified as strong political liberals, and they cared about those things. And we compared how they reacted to beliefs about their politics to beliefs about other things that they claimed to believe just as strongly, but didn't have the same personal stake in. So we took something like, you know, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Everybody believes that, but very few people really, really care too much about Thomas Edison. I actually know at least one person who feels very strongly about Thomas Edison and was very offended by, by these arguments against his, uh, his credibility. But for most people, that, that's, that's not the case. Mm. But for, for a lot of people, things like politics and religion, to change their minds or to feel uncertain about that is to feel uncertain about themselves and about um, their community and their family, potentially. Um, and so if you can succeed in keeping some distance from uh, your beliefs about the world, uh, you know, keeping them separate from yourself, then you're always in a much better position to respond to new evidence and to change those beliefs because you have less at stake, less riding on them. Yeah. This reminds me of, I, don't, I forgot who said this exactly, but we should keep our identities small 
um, or have a lot of identities, like, like mm. identify with a bunch of tribes. So we're not just in one bubble. Uh, we're not just confirming our own biases in one bubble. So it's either keep our identities really small or having a bunch of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. That, that makes me wonder about the whole, you, you, I think you guys both mentioned this idea of tribes. And I, I have this this view that like right now it seems that if you're right-leaning, you probably think global warming is is made up or is not true. But I'm wondering if, I suspect if Donald Trump were to make a tweet saying, folks, I've researched it and global warming is real. We need to change now, MAGA. I would imagine a huge amount of those folks would switch immediately just because a thought leader in that bubble made some sort of announcement. Are our beliefs that easily switchable because well, of uh, tribal? We, we have an example of this recently, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Then, mm hmm with the pope i don't know if oh, you, pope. you guys have i thought you were going this. a different way sorry oh no no so i mean the pope recently made a statement saying that um the death penalty is not prescribable under any circumstances um mm. which has gone against a lot of you know uh, right-wing culture especially in the united states that catholics have been a part of for a long time that has said otherwise um and the catholic church itself has also instituted death penalties for certain, you know, crimes within their institutions and stuff. So um, there's a lot of people that are kind of split on this issue. And it's really interesting. I've been checking out the Catholic subreddits and stuff and seeing what people have had to say because you have, in my mind, it's at least two different kinds of groups of people. One who are saying this is wrong, the, the Pope is wrong. Um, and I, I think I see a lot more of that. And then there's another one that says, well, we have to stick with what the church says and the church we had to put our trust in because, you know, all, all the justifications you can come up with for that. So um, I, I haven't seen a clear consensus on that. I don't know if you have anything to say on that, Jonas. I mean, both, both of those, the Pope and Donald Trump, are in, maybe interesting special cases. The Pope, in, in the sense that uh, mm -hmm. he's supposed to be the ultimate authority, uh, inerrant authority on the church's doctrine. And so mm -hmm. if you sign up for Catholicism, you're kind of signing up to believe whatever he says is the truth mm -hmm. explicitly. Um, Donald Trump is a special case in that if he makes a tweet um, believing in global warming, you might want to wait five or six minutes to see if he makes a tweet. <laughs> contradicting yeah. himself um but he's not supposed to be the inner inerrant authority on on issues of science and yet yes you see um huge changes in uh beliefs that republicans have around things like uh, putin for example and whether whether he's a good guy and i think that has a lot to do with the fact that these beliefs really do serve the purpose of binding us together with other people and and helping us to form groups that have shared worldviews and and being parts of those groups is has been a very important uh, factor for human evolution, and it's something that's deep in our psychology. And so, I, I think this is a this is one of the mechanisms that that helps us stay connected to groups, but it's probably not helping us uh, in today's world. Yeah. Well, with social media, we can we can find our own super niche group to be a part of, um, and it can be painful to be kicked out of that group because you might dissent on it. I, you might be less reluctant to post an article that you think is true because you're you're afraid of the the backlash that you might get, the ostrac ostracization mm -hmm. that you might experience. 
for having done so. Yeah, I mean, you can't underestimate uh, how, how costly these things can be, even for topics that you might not think are so important to people. I, mm -hmm. I talked to a guy um, who contacted me after a study came out who was a, uh, a, someone who worked in politics, and he had been a lifelong Republican. And over the course of uh, a few years, he changed his, his views from being a Republican to being a pretty strong liberal. And that process cost him basically everything. He, he mm -hmm. lost his job. He lost all of his friends. He lost his partner. Um, and, you know, he, wow. he claims that the only reason he was able to actually do it is because he, he views himself as someone who's antisocial and, and doesn't really care so much about his relationships. Mm -hmm. um, but if you do care about your relationships, it can be almost impossible. Wow. Yeah, that's deep. Uh, the guy that I was thinking of, Daniel, just just in case anyone's wondering, uh, Na uh, Trump's NASA chief changed his mind on climate change. Uh, he's a Republican from uh, Jim Bridenstein from Oklahoma. Uh, I think he changed his mind after st spending a few weeks after he got appointed to NASA chief. Uh, he changed his mind on global warming, which makes me think. Which direction? I beg your pardon. Oh, um, he 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 accepted it that global warming is actually real and and uh, and man made, man caused. But this makes me think, maybe we need a, a concentrated effort to identify. I don't know these these people who are in inflection points or something like that. Like, you know maybe we're wasting our time changing people who are just a part of the group and they'll, they'll just fluctuate whenever, wherever these leaders go and, and doing a concentrated effort on the thought leaders of these particular groups. If they can change their mind, huge swaths of people might switch their views as well. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And it, it, that kind of uh, influencing power is something you can analyze now on social networks. You, know, you can look at uh, connections on Twitter and the way information flows and you can identify hubs or you know uh, points of influence and then you could potentially target those points. If you had a good way of targeting those points, I think we still don't even know how to uh, change any particular individual's mind on, on very much. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you probably see the greatest amount of that effect if you know that person really well. And again, I'm drawing just from my own personal experience, the people who still talk to me about my belief changes and are still really interested in having those conversations are the people that I, I was already friends with and who saw me from the before and after and who knew who I was before and were interested in kind of that belief change. And so I was kind of like a, I would say, a guiding point for them to kind of look towards exploring these new ideas um, because they had either not known anybody that was like that before, or they uh, never felt comfortable talking about it with anybody else. And mm. they knew they could express their doubts with me. Um, uh, somebody, a coworker of mine was leaving recently and um, her mother had died recently. And so uh, we had talked about the subject of death and, and um, you know, I told her that I didn't believe that there was anything afterwards. And she was very curious about that. And it was like, well, what do you mean? Like, don't you just feel bad about this? You know, and, and it kind of became a whole thing. But she had always thought I was a Christian. She didn't know that I was, I didn't identify that way before. So now that she kind of had this shift of who I was, because she always made these assumptions about me, she had kind of probed more about my beliefs and, and what I thought about things. So it's kind of interesting to 
you know, kind of build that trust with someone because she knew that I wasn't someone who had bad beliefs for bad reasons necessarily because she saw the way I worked and things like that. So mm. it's just kind of interesting observation. Yeah, I, I've noticed that, that you guys always spend the first uh, few, few moments of the street epistemology videos building some kind of rapport with the person and maybe a little bit of trust. Maybe that's like a, a miniature version of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, even identifying something that you might have in common. Oh, I come here to the trail a lot too. That seems to go a lot, a lot of way, a long way to. It's not to get them to the point where they're easier, easier to manipulate or anything. It's to find a common, a common area of interest. I think to say, going back to tribes. Hey, I'm I'm kind of in this tribe too. I go to this trail a lot too. Or oh, you play tennis. I play tennis too. I think those those are just good conversation builders. That. I'm kind of wondering, though, Jonas, is um, in all these years that you've been studying this and studying human brains, is there any is there any major discovery that surprised you the most? No, you know, if if I think back, um, I, I think partly because as as a scientist, you you kind of have to adopt the perspective, like like you were talking about, where. You can't you can't um, be surprised to be proven wrong because you just see it happen all the time, especially in such a young field like like cognitive neuroscience that I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, the field moves so rapidly that that things, the truth doesn't stay stay as the truth for very long, mm -hmm. um, and so you get kind of get used to seeing things change. But I, I guess the most surprising time I had was at the very beginning of it when I was first learning about the way the brain worked and some of the things that you first learn about the brain challenge your kind of common sense notions of, of the way things should work. You know, we first learn about different forms of brain damage that um, break down the mind in unexpected ways. They can be really surprising if you've never encountered them before. This that actually leads me to an, another question that I had. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to jump in there, Reed? Yeah, just the split brain stuff always just... Uh, makes me feel very, very, very strange. It's yeah, a, so that, that's actually where, where I started my career is in split brain research. And um, I was able to meet some of the original split brain patients and test them. And wow. you're, you're right, it's totally um, can be mind boggling to think about. <laughs> mind boggling. Totally. Yes. So we, we hear a lot of people who say that you can't trust your brain how would you know that your brain was malfunctioning? So therefore, uh, you need to presuppose something rather than going off of these these unreliable brains that we have. So I guess my question is, uh, and this I don't know if this has an answer, but what advice would you have? What would be the best way for a human to discover that the brain they were using was... Uh, unreliable or leading them... Leading them to these wildly um, unreasonable conclusions, other than other humans observing them, like and noticing, like he's acting really erratically. He's he's he just pulled off all his clothes in the middle of the supermarket or something like that. Is there something the human himself can do? Things I've, to look for that might be like, oh man, maybe well, this, think, maybe the machinery isn't working quite quite as well as I as I thought that it is. I think that's what science is. I mean, it, it, science is, is a process that we've developed for trying to 
mitigate the fact the the effects of our own biases and the fact that we 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 aren't always right and there's basically always something going wrong as far as the brain is an imperfect reflection of the world and so i think we have to just assume that some degree of that is always happening and we have to try to triangulate the truth by uh, setting things up uh, to restrict our inference process in specific ways to remove biases right that that is what the process of science is if you're asking sort of how do I know if my brain is malfunctioning beyond um, the levels that it normally does, <laughs> um, if, m maybe for certain forms of that, you do need to rely on other people. Okay, so if we're going to presuppose anything, it should be that we need to be careful in what we conclude is true. Yeah. Uh, did you think the dress was gold or blue? <laughs> we go for the deep questions here. Yeah. I, I, um, Annie I, or Laurel? I was, yeah. for, for those things, it's always frustrating because I want to be able to see both, right? I know, I, I know someone else is seeing something else, and it's just a matter of like, how can I switch my brain over to the other side so I can see the other one? I want to have both, both experiences. Illusions are good for this too. Illusions are great for yeah. this, yeah. A, a book of illusions is just is fantastic for for showing that we are perceiving things slightly different. Yeah, and and also not not just that we're perceiving things differently, but that basically everything we perceive is some kind of a construction of the brain. And that our actual experience of the world is really our experience of a representation that the brain is constructing. Um, mm. And Neil Seth has called it a controlled hallucination. I think that's that's a good uh, metaphor for it because the, the brain really is creating a reality that that we experience. And I, I have some illusions that I use to show this in, in lectures that I give. And it's definitely, there, there are a lot of compelling um, illusions you can show to convince yourself that what you normally experience is, is not just some veridical reflection of the world. It's a construction that your brain is creating. I always thought, you, you probably noticed in our videos, we, we carry around a little box of candies to illustrate whether truth is objective or subjective or... Um, maybe a key fob if i make a claim that i own a ferrari we have these little little props that we occasionally have out there and i'm wondering if if showing a person an illusion where you know, they, they would say oh that's obviously an old lady that's there and you say, and you say well it looks like a vase to me could be a really good way to introduce people to these concepts yeah it, it could be but i guess you know you you might worry that um you there's, there's a difference between um, understanding that what your brain perceives is not objective reality and not believing in objective reality. Mm -hmm. and you, you don't want to start convincing people of the, the second. And so something like the, the vase woman illusion can start to sound like the second because there really is no truth of the matter in that illusion as to whether it, it is a face or a vase. They're, they're both different valid interpretations of of reality there. Um, so the question is sort of how do we um, convince people that their instruments for, for perceiving reality are unreliable, um, but at the same time maintain that there is an objective reality that we can we can get a handle on if we if we do it in the right way. Yes. Oh this this is this is great because this seems to be a real sticking point for a lot of people. Um, I'm sorry, Dan, did you have a question? Nope, nope, nope. Okay. I'm listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, this is good because 
I, brains are they're obviously fallible, but they're the only tools that I think we have available to us for making sense of all this stuff. And, and to just simply assert that we um, we can know things. Um, it seems like it's it's just dismissing a whole bunch of science that suggests otherwise with regards to the the reliability of our brains. Yeah, but we can know things, right? I mean, we 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 can also um, some of the models that we build of reality are obviously very very useful, and mm. um, all you have to do is re remind people that uh, they've probably taken some kind of medicine within the last year that was a result of scientific knowledge and and us being able to measure the world in very specific ways and build more and more complicated models of it that allow us to actually do things that we couldn't do before. So we, we definitely can accumulate knowledge. So since we have Jonas here, I'd love to get like the backstory of the backfire effect research. Like how did you first get into research in general and this specific research? And like even Sam Harris has co-authored on the paper. I'd love to get the backstory on that. Uh, just like tell, I'd love to hear the story. The title. <laughs> how'd you come up with this? Well, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, that that's true. Like, how did you get introduced into this? And then you, yeah, why did you decide to like write this article too? Yeah, so, um, well, I, as a cognitive neuroscientist, the reason that I've always been interested in the brain is because I'm interested in consciousness and in the self. Um, and that has always just seemed to me to be the biggest mystery in the universe, how it is that my own consciousness can arise out of the operation of a bunch of flesh, basically. Um, and so I decided to go to grad school and um, study the brain, and that's when I got involved in the split brain research. I was at UCLA studying with a guy named Ron Zydell. Um, and uh, then I stayed at UCLA learning neuroimaging, and um, that is where I met Sam Harris. Sam was doing his PhD at the time, and he and I um, started talking a lot because we had a common interest in consciousness. And uh, we developed this idea for a study on religious belief uh, that was a follow-up to a study, he, a previous study he had done. And we uh, decided to study um, the neural basis of religious belief by uh, doing some neuroimaging with people who were uh, devout Christians, people who were uh, fundamentalist Christians that believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. And we compared them to atheists, people who had exactly the opposite beliefs on religious matters, um, in order to, to look into the brain and ask, is there anything different about believing that um, the devil really exists compared to believing that Superman doesn't exist, for example. Um, and so we had people evaluate different kinds of beliefs that were either religious or not, and we looked into the brain to see what was happening. And interestingly, we actually didn't really find very many differences between the Christians and the atheists in terms of what was happening in the brain when they believed something compared to when they didn't believe something. It kind of looks to us like belief is belief, regardless of the content of your belief. Um, we did find that both groups activated emotional structures in the brain when they thought about religious topics compared to non-religious topics which was interesting. I mean, I think mm. religion just kind of brings up these, these feelings and emotions for everyone. Um, and both groups here did actually define themselves based on their beliefs, even though they had opposing content to those beliefs. So Sam and I did that study, um, and it was published back in 2009, I believe. And um, after that, I moved to USC, um, where I've been working at the Brain and Creativity Institute, which is an institute that was founded by uh, Antonio Damasio. Antonio Damasio is a great neuroscientist 
uh, reading his books when I was an undergrad is one of the things that got me interested in the field. And he's uh, been really influential in terms of introducing the study of emotion back into the study of the brain. Um, so Sam and I were thinking about what the next follow-up study would be, and we started to think about how important belief change was uh, because you know, it's so important that we be able to change our minds and it's so rare to witness it actually happen in, in person that we thought we'd look into why this was. And so uh, we put together this study with uh, my colleague at the BCI, Sarah Gimbel, and the three of us uh, designed and implemented this study on, uh, on beliefs using politics just because uh, it was an area where we knew people would have really strong beliefs and we could predict what those beliefs would be. Um, and yet it made sense to argue against those beliefs. I think, you know, coming up with factual arguments against religious beliefs is kind of silly uh, in, in a lot of circumstances. But with political beliefs, people sort of ostensibly um, claim that their beliefs are based on facts and evidence and argumentation. And so uh, it made, made a lot of sense for us to see what happens when, when people are actually confronted with those arguments. Mm. Um, as for the title of the study, we wanted to call it Why the Brain Won't Change Its Mind. A catchy title, but uh, uh, yeah, J Journal wanted something a little more dry and, and scientific, and I, I can understand that. Do you, are you planning any updates to your studies? I, I think your job is to help grad students come up with research projects, I think. Um, if that's correct me if that's not it, but are, are you yourself planning on any more studies? Do you have anything else in the works? Yeah, we have. I mean, that's part of the job. We, we have. Um, uh, some things we're following up on looking at the role of emotion in belief change. So we want to understand better why, um, excuse me, why and, and how emotion plays a role in responding to information that challenges your beliefs. And so uh, with my colleague Steve Greening at LSU, we've been doing some uh, physiological recordings, uh, looking at heart rate and skin conductance changes when people are challenged on their beliefs. And at USC, we have a project going looking at uh, emotion regulation. Can we, if we learn to control our emotions better, if we can kind of um, uh, be better uh, stewards of the way that we feel when, when we're challenged, uh, does that lead us to being more open-minded? Oh, that's cool. Well, this kind of leads me to one thing that's been nagging at us, uh, the people, practitioners of street epistemology, is that we really have no data to back up the hypotheses that we th that we that we are clinging to um hypocrites talked about this a little bit but what I'm, i guess what i'm wondering is is there some way for us to go about quantifying the effectiveness of the socratic type of dialogue that you've seen examples of do you, is there anything that that that's pops off the top of your head that you think might we might be able to do I think there's probably two classes of strategies for doing that. One is to um, try to take some measurements out in the field. You guys are basically doing field work um, and um, you have a intervention out in the wild that doesn't lend itself that well to a purely scientific investigation because you know you have something like sampling bias, for example. You're, mm -hmm. you're not um, randomly sampling population out, out in the location that you're at. Number one, you're choosing the location. Number two, there's, you know, whoever decides to talk to you versus the people who don't decide to talk to you uh, that mm -hmm. might differentiate them. So it, it's difficult to make it uh, to make it purely scientific, but you could measure things like um, how strong belief was before the conversation compared to after the conversation. 
you could um, record uh, individual characteristics of the people you talk to and then try to relate those characteristics to um, the measures you get in their belief change. For example, are people who are more religious less likely to change their minds? So what about men versus women, about um, mm -hmm. different kind of ideological stances? Age, is it mm -hmm. true that you can't teach an old dog new tricks? <laughs> Um, and then the other uh, class of strategies is to try to translate what you guys are doing to take some of the core aspects of it and bottle it up and make it into a laboratory experiment. Yeah. Which, um, you know, the process of doing that is going to be maybe unsatisfying to you guys because you'll see how things get watered down as we bring them into the laboratory and they get less like what you do out in the real world as we try to make them all um, sanitized and, and controlled. Um, but you could ask questions like in the laboratory, like um, does a direct challenge to one's beliefs um, work differently than some kind of Socratic uh, series of questions um, that we pre-formulated? -pre so there are ways of, of making laboratory experiments out of it. Mm. Well, that's, that's encouraging, because I think that's the direction that we need to go, and I think uh... At the expense of losing some of the the personality of the discussions, if we had to sanitize them, I think was the word that you used, uh, boil them out down into sort of black and white. Here are the steps. Here are the questions that you ask, and then rolling it out to thousands of people in some sort of controlled environment. That that might be the direction that we need to go. Yeah, I mean, that I think that would be really valuable because you want to be able to make claims about the method that are independent of um, your personalities. You know, if, maybe it's just that you're you're such a nice guy and you've got such a sweet-looking face that, that people just melt in your presence and mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the questions that you're asking. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can if you can uh, make it um, routinized and and independent from yeah. from you i mean it it's maybe it's not going to work as well because it's not a a um natural conversation at that point and maybe that natural conversation is is a necessary element but mm. yeah, i see what you're saying like we talked about rapport building if if we completely scrubbed the rapport building and started asking 13 questions have you just tainted the outcome of the 13 questions because you've totally skipped the that important rapport building phase? Right. Yeah, this is tricky, man. This is so tricky. Welcome to science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what we I, need I, to do is kidnap a few PhD students <laughs> who are willing to do this for us and just pump out all the data. I think that's the plan. <laughs> Let's I wouldn't mind traveling to USC and coming together, coming up with some sort of thing. I think it would be neat, though. I, I think it could be done in a way where... It, you could even ask people to pick the topic. This wouldn't be like saying, okay, we're going to ask all these people about karma because karma is safe, yet it's still kind of supernatural. There's a low cost maybe for abandoning it. It's not like a religion or a religious belief or politics. I'm thinking that it might even be better just to say, identify a belief that you feel very strongly about. That's, that's step number one. Step number two is, um, now identify the the cost that would be incurred if you were to uh, decide that this mm -hmm. belief wasn't true, and just walk them through these these sort of questions, where you probably could do some sort of sanitized study on it. I would think. Yeah, I mean the the methodologist in me uh, doesn't like the idea of leaving it up to the uh, person because 
Um, well, number one, you're going to introduce a lot of variance into the results by people having different topics that they're talking about. And number two, if you want to compare the street epistemology method with some other more direct method, you want to have direct arguments prepared for, for those uh, uh, topics that you're going to deal with. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, the Alinkas phase, when you're asking those questions, they, they do, well, they seem to work mm -hmm. best when they're very targeted and you can use examples, maybe mm -hmm. even building in some of the, taking some of the things that came up during the rapport building phase when you're formulating your hypotheticals and you're questioning people. Uh, well, yeah. maybe maybe a, a topic like superstitions could be a good a good sort of... Yeah, I mean, if you fix the topic and then just filter the people so that you find people who have that belief, that, that's one way of going about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because how people ask certain questions is going to depend on the kind of belief as well. And it might depend on the person asking the belief too, because people can frame things different way and different ways. And so it kind of... You know, I can see how there's a lot of variables in there that would have to be accounted for. So, yeah, it's a tricky business. But I th this this is a direction that we want to head towards. And it, what's so valuable about about meeting people like yourself is that um, I, I would imagine we're going to reach a point soon where there will be people who want to back this and do a study, and they have deep pockets that can help us actually study the effectiveness of this. And it, it'll be nice to have allies that we can go to to get some guidance to figure out how we go about doing this yeah definitely I, th I think it would be important work to be done i mean any anything um that we can do to um provide solid evidence for some method that actually works would, would be great for sure all right fellas any more questions for jonas here i've got uh, an audience question um doug from Pine Creek has asked, has there any has there been any research opposing the backfire effect? Anything showing that it isn't real or happening? Yes. Um, so yeah, it's a recent study just came out this year. Um, it was a very well done study with thousands of participants, and they uh, challenged all kinds of beliefs and, and didn't find evidence for the backfire effect. And that's why I say I think we still don't really understand um, this phenomenon, and we have a lot to learn about why some people have shown it and why other uh, researchers have not shown it. And it could have something to do with um, very subtle issues of wording of the questions. It could have to do with the types of beliefs that are dealt with. It could have to do with the particular people. Um, I guess I, I'm not so concerned with the backfire effect per se. I, I think it's interesting that sometimes a, an erroneous belief can get stronger in the face of counter evidence. But to me, the more important thing is the fact that the beliefs just don't get softer. And it, when when uh, when encountering evidence, you know, it, it's weird if our belief gets even stronger. But if it doesn't get softer, um, that's also a problem. And and that's a very very consistent result. That once a belief is formed, it's very difficult to correct a belief that isn't true. Mm -hmm. Jonas, I'm assuming you've seen. Oh, sorry, Ray. Did you have something to add? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. So I'm assuming you've seen at least a few videos of street epistemology conversations. Um, do you have any ideas uh, that would add to the method that you think would make it more effective? In other words, do you have challenges to the method either as critique or as in addition to what would make a method like this more viable or more effective? That's a really interesting question. I guess when I think about answering it, my first question is effective towards what goal? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, 
I, I feel like one of the things that's maybe vague in the street epistemology videos is why am I having this conversation with this person? Um, is it because I'm explicitly directly trying to change their mind about this belief that they have? Or is it that I'm just trying to get them to question a little bit or to have some doubt? Um, or is it just that I want to have a conversation with them? Um, and so I, I, now I feel like in, in a way, the way the part of the value of it and the reason that it is um, interesting to watch and that it seems to have some effect is because there isn't an explicit direct goal of trying to change someone's mind in it, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least it has to walk a line with that uh, a, a little bit. Um, so if the goal is to get people to uh, think about why they believe what they believe, I think you guys do a great job. If the belief is, if the idea is to actually change people's minds on, on a particular topic, um, then I'd be interested to see what would happen if you supplemented some of the Socratic techniques with some more information once you at least had some kind of rapport and some kind of in, inroads. This actually reminds me of something that I think it was Max. He was He was saying that he thought that it could be beneficial if we were a little bit more upfront with what was motivating us to be asking these questions in the first place. That um, being a little bit more blunt as far as what's driving us, what we're hoping to achieve might actually yield better results. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, part of what people are always doing in a conversation like that, especially with a stranger, is trying to divine what their intention is. You know, like, <laughs> why, why is this guy out here asking these questions? And mm -hmm. they, they seem to take take your word for it that you just want to talk to people and, and you're recording it for some reason. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I think that, that, that would be interesting. I, I'd be interested to see what happened if you told people exactly why you were doing what you're doing. And if what if those reasons were different, so for example, if you said, look, I'm out here trying to change people's minds about their strongly held beliefs, versus, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> versus mm. if you said, look, I'm out here, I'm just making a YouTube video because people find it interesting to watch conversations. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, I've see, I, if, I feel like over the years, I've been disclosing more and more about what I'm doing and what my motivations are. And it might be because viewers are suggesting that I should be doing so. I think that's one thing. And then also I'm learning that by disclosing what I'm doing, it's usually met with, with um, curiosity. They are perhaps even more eager to participate when they, I, I literally say I'm, I'm doing this thing called street epistemology and we challenge beliefs by asking questions. And sometimes e people are even a little bit less sure of their belief at the end of a talk. And I might even get into what motivates me. It, there's there's a lot that I'm throwing at them and I need to get consent to record. And there's, we talked about this before. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome. So I don't want to overwhelm somebody, but I'm getting the the script, for lack of a better word, perfected where I'm I'm pushing out a lot of things to them and they just seem to be rolling with it for the most part. Most people aren't scared off by disclosing exactly what you're doing out there. How many, uh, what, what portion of the videos that you record do we show up on the channel? Like what, what, what kind of a, 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 a sample are we seeing? Are we seeing like the 5% of the, the ones that really worked or are we pretty much seeing most of them? Well, that's a good, okay. So our, my answer is going to be different than Reed's and I don't think Dan's doing um, interviews just yet, but I would say 
this is complicated because there are other reasons why I don't upload stuff. And it's not just because I didn't think the conversation was effective. There's an entertainment component to this for, for myself now. I've got a lot of subscribers. I'd like to keep them. I, I don't want to bore them. There's also a time element. All right. It, it might take me, it takes me sometimes hours to take a 30 minute talk and edit it so that it's nice and looks good and it's on YouTube. Why would I spend all that time for something that's just going to bore people? But to answer your question, um, I might talk with 10 people and find one of those conversations that meet the entertaining quality dialogue, something unique. But, uh, and then I might upload that one out of 10, but it doesn't mean that the nine were just shitty conversations. They were profound, really good conversations. Just they were kind of ho-hum by, by my own standards. I don't delete those. I save them just in case somebody comes back six months later and says that they were in that nine of 10 and they're like, dude, that was the best conversation ever. Like that's, that's happened to, to me. Um, but, um, it doesn't mean that they were bad or ineffective. They all, they all seem to kind of go the way that I, I tend to show. I don't want to. It, it doesn't do me any good to upload examples that are not accurate reflections of what's happening here because someone like Reed's going to come along and try to do the same thing and, and probably notice right away, like, wait a second, there's a big discrepancy here. What do you think, Reed? Yeah, there's some criteria for uploading for me as well. And it's, it's probably around 10 to 20% uh, of the interviews I do that I end up uploading. Mm-hmm. Somebody suggested, uh, Anthony, just just take your all your footage and just upload it and put it into a channel or something where mm. anyone that really wanted to drill down deeper into this to see if there's any any uh, deception or bias or something that you can do that. I, I'm open to doing that. It's one of the reasons I started live streaming so that people could see what a typical day is like. And I might have 10 chats. And yeah, maybe I would upload 10 of those con- uh, one of those conversations, but people can see why I wasn't uploading those other nine. It's not that the person didn't question or maybe experienced doubt. It was just sort of a standard kind of, like I mentioned before, sort of a ho-hum type of dialogue. Right, right. Well, I'm glad we're live streaming this. I know I'm going to make the cut. Yeah, (laughs) you're in. You're in. Oh, man, I've got so many more questions for you. Uh, Reed, do you have any more? Um, I think... I think that's pretty good for me. Yeah. Yeah. This was fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm really tickled that you watched the SE videos and, and you seem to be getting something from it. We definitely get, we're definitely gaining a lot from the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, I hope we can continue keeping in touch and growing this and, and sharing from, from other examples. Did you tell me that you, you were playing a few videos in, uh, to one of your classes? At one point or something? Yeah, yeah, not to a not to a class, but to a little research group I have, a set mm-hmm. of un- undergraduate students that uh, work together with me on our on the study we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we played one uh, one or two of the videos and and discussed it and and how the conversation that you guys had related to the things that we were learning in our research. So it was really useful for us. That's awesome. That's neat to think that uh, there's people sitting in research labs watching street epistemology videos. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. All right. Well, let's definitely keep in touch. And if, if you come across something that you think could be useful for us or something you'd like us to experiment with, shoot it our way. I, I would definitely like to try to, to try to keep experimenting. 
Yeah, I, I would love to turn it into an experiment. Let's let's absolutely keep in touch. Absolutely. Well, you're, you feel free to stick around if you like. We're gonna we're gonna move into another portion of the show. Uh, you can feel free to stick around and weigh in if you like, or if you want to bounce, that's fine as well. Okay. All right. Read what's next on the docket. Um, next up looks like uh, my recap of Camp Quest, my experience uh, being a camp counselor for uh, yeah. Camp Quest. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Camp Quest, Jonas? What is that? Um, it's a kid's uh, science camp. I think the ages range from 8 to 16. Uh, it's a secular um, science-based, um, no gods at all. And it's actually uh, very much uh, um, putting forward, you know, pro science. And we, we talk about different free thought heroes, they call them, uh, where the counselor counselors tell each, like when people, when the kids line up for breakfast each morning or, or during certain meals, they have like a big card that uh, gives the, the backstory of like a certain scientist or a uh, public intellectual who uh, was secular and did, did a lot of great things. It's not just California um, either. I, I think there there's several across the United States. Uh, there was one in Texas. I was able to give a talk on street epistemology there. How did that go? Were you, were you more of a counselor though? I was a cabin counselor. I was uh, in charge of six, uh, nine to ten year olds, ten year old boys. Nice. Uh, so that was that was an interesting experience. Were there other ten year olds that were like, "You're you're Reed Nice Wonder from Kojo Curiosity"? Wow! <laughs> like just like huge fans of your work. Um, no, not none of the kids. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, <I> mean, <laughs> give him another year, man. Another yeah. year, you got this. I think one or one or two other of the other counselors. Uh, Knew about it though. I saw, uh, my also my uh, other counselor cabin roommate was Ross Blotcher from Oh No Ross and Carrie the podcast. So he was, that was mm. really fun. Ah uh, yeah, that's awesome. I don't know if I could go to it. I don't think I could do a sleepover camp for a week with a bunch of kids. I think that would really test my patience. Oh man, you got to work Christian camp sometime, dude. I'm telling mm. you, I just don't. I don't think I could do it. Like I went there, I gave a talk on SE. It was like three hours. And by the end of it, I was done. I was ready to drive home. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe my age. That's awesome. Well, glad to have you back. I know you missed the last show reading and I'm glad to have you back for the show. It's awesome. Sure thing. Uh, I guess next up, uh, Dan, want to talk about your, your show progress? Yeah. So uh, a lot of people have been asking me about this because I keep acting like it's about to happen and then it seems like, oh, you're still doing testing. And it's like, yes, um, every single week we've been testing some stuff for this new show because, um, again, this new show is going to be hosted out of the atheist community of Austin. So if you're a fan of atheist experience and talk heathen, this is the same group of people who produce these shows. So we're trying to make it as high quality as possible. And we want to make sure that when we go live and it's out there, that it looks nice and we're completely ready to go. So we do have a name for it now. It's called Truth Wanted. And the idea is that people are calling in to tell us what the truth is. Maybe our politicians are all lizard men or global warming <laughs> like just isn't a thing. Um, 
or there's a God or there isn't a God. Whatever the truth is, we want to know and we want people to call in and talk. And we're also experimenting with having different hosts from the YouTube community, including the Street Epistemology YouTube community, to come in via kind of like a live stream what we're doing now. Um, and that's something that's new that the AC has never done before. And we've been trying it and it's been working so far. So you could probably expect to see Reed or Anthony or some of these other guys on the show sometime. It'll be really fun. Um, so yeah, it's been going really great. Um, we're gonna premiere next month and I'm not gonna give you an exact date, but it is going to happen. And the plan is to premiere alongside another show. And again, not gonna tell you which one, but you might be able to guess. Um, so we're gonna, you know, kind of have a test audience. I mean, not a test audience, but like a, a set audience up there ready for us to see what we're doing and, and kind of kick things off. Um, but so far it's been really great. And I'm really, really excited. Been working really hard to get this thing off the ground for past month or two. Um, just driving down Austin every weekend, getting with other people who are also, by the way, volunteering their time to make this happen. So thanks to the ACA for, you know, getting this off the ground. It's been really fun. <clears throat> That's great. I love it that you're going after other claims, not just religious stuff. Yes. That, that's going to widen your caller base. I think you're going to get a lot more people that want to call in and, and challenge you or or uh, make a case for their, their pet belief, not necessarily that a God exists. So that's great. Yeah, I agree. We're, we're, yeah, we're, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I love the idea of having all of us street epistemology community, like going out on the day and maybe going out in public and setting up a camera for people to call into your show, your live show. That would yes. be very interesting. Yes, we've been talking about doing that as well. Um, and also kind of what we did on Epistemic Here, um, kind of in the, the first few episodes, maybe doing some critique of other videos of people talking to other people, having these conversations when we think about those conversations. Um, so it's gonna be segmented with different things. It's not just gonna be an hour of calls. We're gonna have conversations with other content creators and, and just the people in the skeptic community and maybe see if Street epistemology isn't the only method of having mm -hmm. conversations with people. Maybe there's other methods. We'll talk about that, see what's out there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. If you want to know more about that, follow me on Twitter at ObjectivelyDan to get updates on when we're doing live tests. And you might get a link just in time to be a part of that as well. So also, have... the channel the channel's out there too. It's called um, Truth Wanted. And you can go ahead and subscribe to that now. It is up there. Um, and we're going to have a Facebook page pretty soon too. So it's happening. That was my question is what was yeah. your, what was your YouTube channel name? So I'm glad that you gave it. Yes. It started off. The first channel name was phone epistemology. That was just the placeholder. And oh. I was like, <laughs> it wasn't like, it wasn't the name we were going to use, but I just thought that was funny. Cause it's like, it's so, it's so long <laughs> and bland. Like, <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I think truth wanted is really good. I like it. Yeah. So it's going to be really fun. That's really exciting. Okay, well, I guess we'll get to what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. Well, I finally got my hands on a talk that I gave. It wasn't so much of a talk as it was a sit-down conversation between myself and Matt Dillahunty. Reed, you were there, mm -hmm. and you were live streaming from your Facebook. But I ended up getting my hands on three different angles of, of the conversation where Matt and I were sitting down, and we were talking about tactics. He tends to take a more aggressive, uh, let me show you that you're wrong type of approach, although he's modifying his approach, it seems, over the years. Um, but we, we basically started talking about the different 
<laughs> I saw I saw that face read. Um, he's been kind of changing his approach. And how come I how come I'm not popping up when I talk? I'm noticing that. Uh, just you me? are for me. You are. Am yeah. I for you guys? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just not for me. Oh, maybe that's just how it works. Oh well. Uh, but anyways, I'm sorry. So we had this great sit-down conversation. It was probably 30 minutes or so where we talked about our backgrounds and the different styles. And he had some good questions for me, like what happens when you run into somebody who's a little bit more prepared and they're a little bit more knowledgeable on the topic at hand. So he, he pushed back on a, on a few things and I challenged him, him on a few things. I finally got that footage. We're updating the audio because it's not that good. But we're trying to make it as good as we can. And I think probably before the end of this month, that conversation will show up on his YouTube channel. And maybe a week after that, I'll throw it up on my YouTube channel. And then we'll release the audio on the SE podcast. So I'm really eager to get that out. I've also been busy coming up with a... Uh, the American Atheists have asked me to write up a toolkit to basically how to engage with somebody... Uh, on difficult topics, so I've been taking all the all the learnings, all the findings that have that have been uh, experiencing, and jotting that down for them. And that's pretty much it. I've got all sorts of other little things. We've been we've been um, coming up with a way to to add people's names to a place on the Street Epistemology website. If you're interested in giving a talk, if you think that you're competent enough to give a talk on SE, you can add your name to a list. So if somebody's in California and they're looking for a speaker. They can go to a page on the Street Epistemology website and see who's in their area who might be willing to give a talk. That is a lot more efficient than having people racing all over the country, and it broadens out the the speaker base. Uh, it's just a better way of getting this information out to people. But other than that, um, I'm just doing interviews left and right. I've been trying to bring other people in along these interviews with me. Uh, we had deep discussions. Eddie joining me for, for an interview that I did, as well as Ben from Seeds of Thought. Um, I was on Talk Heathen, was it last weekend or something like that? Uh, it's blown up. There, there's a genuine interest in what we're doing. And it's really neat to see people getting behind it and, and challenging us too. So that's it. Uh, the other thing I have going on, I think, is I'm going to be going to the Bat Cruise. It's the, the Atheist Community of Austin is putting that on. I bought two tickets. I'm going to probably go to that. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll run into you there, Dan. You, you were there last probably. year. I haven't yeah. got my tickets yet, but I really need to because I hear they're running out. So <laughs> Yeah, that's the word. You yeah. need to get them quick. Yeah. So maybe I'll see you up there. But other than that, uh, things are going great. I've been busy with lots of little projects, um, and I'm hoping that once the cicadas die down and that <laughs> awful whining noise that just kills the footage, um, I can get back out there on the trail and start having some more talks. Is there a plague going on down there? <laughs> you think? Always. Always. It's been weeks, just weeks of this droning noise. Jeez. I think there's a way to tune that out using some software, but I think I'd just rather... It's so annoying. It's It just distracts me. So It's funny what will, what will prevent me from going out there and doing talks. It's insects. <laughs> uh, speaking of going out and doing talks, we have one quick announcement about someone else who... Uh went out oh, yeah. today was it today today uh, it was from linda mako mako from the channel super curious she is out in finland so she's this is her new setup out on the trail wow and a, a new innovation she has coffee for people <laughs> yes <laughs> That's i love it incredible so she looks like she's doing like coffee conversations out in the out in the trail it's pretty great 
It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Look at this. This is so cool. This is and, fantastic. Yeah, like that's in I don't know what language that it's in. Swedish? Finnish. 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 Yeah. Finnish. So cool. I love the little blanket or the whatever that is on top of the table. It's so too. cozy. Look at that. I want to sit down there. Love it. Fantastic. Yeah, we definitely need to see more of that. And and she'll bring her own little flair, a little style to it, make this better, and other people will watch her videos, and we just keep growing from there. Good, good stuff. Very cool. All right. Jonas, uh, was stuff. there anything else on the list? I uh, don't think so. Somebody was asking in the chat, what is the best way to contact you, Jonas? I know that you're on Twitter, but do you have a, do you have a preferred way that people can reach out to you? Uh, yeah, they can, they can send me an email. Um, JT Kaplan at this. Is there anything is that dangerous to say your email address online? I don't think so. Right? I'm not like sure. That's never bit anybody in the ass before. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what, let's see what happens. JT Kaplan at USC.edu. Send me an email. <laughs> Gutsy. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was really a blast, Jonas. I'm, I'm so glad that you were here for this. Um, we'd love to have you back sometime sure. if, if you come across some new research or we have some exciting new developments to, to share with you. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Uh, no, no. Okay, great. Sweet. All right. You guys want to give your social, uh, Anthony? Sure. Reach out to me on Twitter at MagnaBosco. M-A-G-N-A-B-O-S-C-O. And I've got a YouTube channel at MagnaBosco210. Uh, check out my videos, like them, share them on Facebook, and definitely check out the playlist that we've created, tinyurl.com forward slash SE latest releases. You can find all the content from pretty much anyone that's uploading content related to SE. We're sticking it in that playlist. So check it out. Cool. Dan? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, again, at ObjectivelyDan, also on my YouTube channel, at ObjectivelyDan, and pretty soon be on the lookout for my new page, should be called Truth Wanted on Facebook, and again, the Truth Wanted uh, YouTube channel as well, um, so, yeah. All right, awesome, and again, my name is Reed Nicewonder from Cordial Curiosity, YouTube channel, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, my latest video, I did something different. I did a little uh, thought experiment game from Veritasium. Uh, see if you can guess the rule. It's my last video. That was a lot of fun. So cool. It's awesome. Y'all check it out. It's really cool. Yeah. All right. I guess that's it. Thank you guys so much. Thanks again, Dr. Kaplan. Yep. Thanks, Stan. Thanks, Stan. And until next time, see you later. All right. Bye-bye. See you, everyone. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.